We're speaking with Dr. Paula David, who spent decades working with Holocaust survivors and their caretakers. She's a social worker, educator, and group therapist. This is part three in my conversation with Dr. Paula David. You know, I'm really fascinated by this Caring for Holocaust Survivals manual that you sent. And I just think it's really interesting for people to not only the the children of survivors, but I think a lot of the information kind of extends to people who have intergenerational trauma, you know, going back generations. You mentioned ways in which couples were bonded by their shared survival of the traumatic events of World War II. And you mentioned couples who came together post-war as well as couples who met before their time in concentration camps. And then reunited by fate as immigrants in the new world. And just now you had mentioned, you know, a couple that came together after the fact, but knew each other before. So um, I was just wondering if you could speak to that bond because the manual refers to this symbiosis and there's mentions of, you know, one partner is ill and the other isn't. And there's this very strong protective desire by the healthy partner to just protect their their loved one. You're so right. And I also wondered about this. And I mean, I had the luxury of having a group of the best teachers in the world, these women that had already experienced and were ready to talk. And I asked the exact same question in terms of what was your the greatest loss in your life? Was it when they shot your children? Was it when they took you lost your parents and they marched them off? Was it when you found out that you had no more family? And I mean, I can't imagine any of it. And it was fundamental curiosity on my part, trying to understand. And unanimously, the except for three women who did not have great marriages, but unanimously it was when their husbands died all of which would have been in the last 10 years of the conversation and i said but really you had a life with your husband you you know but he was a good husband and you chose him and that's when you were safe and all of those things that i was trying to understand the answer to that was yes but when i lost my husband i lost the only person who really understood who i am and what i went through because he went through it he knows. He knows where I come from, He, the same town, or he knows where I come from in my um, panic attacks or whatever it was. And my children can't know. And I don't want them to know. And you can't know. <laughs> true, true enough. And um, so that was a major learning for me and an impact for me of what marriages were. And they were survival marriages. Many couples met in displaced persons camp after the war and their commonality would have been language or it would have been the same town or you knew my uncle. Um, and that was as much family it was as was going to be available and to come. And again, I don't know if anyone's researched this in any great depth, but many, many of those marriages were fine. They worked out quite well. And it wasn't um, because great dates and great passion and loving. Um, it was because they became a, a very good team at surviving. And they really, really needed each other. So 
that's a whole other interesting aspect. Yeah, and it makes me wonder about survivors who married someone who didn't go through the same experience. What, like, what were their unique challenges? They're different. It's interesting. For many years, I had a ch- adult children of survivor group, and some of them would come and say, "My parents are a mixed marriage," and it would mean survivor, non-survivor. Um, actually, I'm in a mixed marriage, so and I really thought that wasn't an issue ever um, until I found out that. Certain things I don't know, I don't understand. And um, so, yes, and I think that's the reason those were less common. And some of the some of the um, children of survivors who grew up in survivor communities and their parents were friends with all the other survivors. Um, and it wasn't really till they went to school and found out that not all families um, came from Europe devastated or had numbers on tattoos on their arms. Um, but one woman, a child of survivors, was saying, she, very, very, hardly any extended family, and was saying one of her great fears and heartbreaks, she had one daughter, when my daughter grows up and gets married, is that I have this vision of a large family, you know, boisterous, happy, the groom's family, and she and I will be the only people from our family at the head table. And the visual in that is so stark and sad. And um, But what survivors did to compensate is they made other survivors that they met here um, as extended family, as surrogate family. And they did have great commonalities. So there was a mix of that. And so many of the mixed marriages... It was an ongoing struggle and not so much right after the war because people really didn't understand. They were too busy getting back on their feet before they started thinking of all of the other implications. For children of Holocaust survivors, they haven't had the same relationship with grandparents that a lot of folks have, you know, and they haven't um, grieved, uh, seeing their own parents grieving their parents. So can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. Um, in my job, I realized very quickly there was something different at end of life with survivors and their families than non-survivors. I would was in a position a few times to call a family member to say, your mom is failing. Perhaps their mom was in palliative care already, so it's that wouldn't be a shock. But your mom is failing, and if you want to see her, you should come in tonight. And many, many survivors' children um, carrying the burden of their parents' trauma, carrying a responsibility, are in helping professions. Many of them are well-educated because that was their parents' commitment um, to survival, really. And um, so I would be speaking to very intelligent, very well-educated people when I make this phone call at one in the morning, you know, come in to say goodbye to your mom. And the answer often in different ways was, you don't know my mother. She'll be fine. She's a survivor. She beat Hitler. I've heard that. And I'm thinking, but this is cancer. And it's just... um, it's it's a different approach, and it wasn't denial. It wasn't what I first thought. It's sort of the myth of survivors. Um, I actually went back to school to 
learn how to do research because I didn't really know and I couldn't get anyone else interested. But there is something wrong in what we're doing here. In palliative care, to get quality palliative care, you have to agree to know life life lengthening, you know, dramatic heroic interventions, et cetera, and that it's comfort care and will keep you pain-free. And the people that had lived in our complex, many of my clients said, yes, they agree, they understand, their families did, we would have these discussions. But they had no intention of dying. So we found out later, and that this isn't fair. Like in survivor families, we need to offer a different service and a different, we shouldn't make them promise to do something they cannot promise to do. So that, and then I couldn't prove that. Um, and I had a whole new appreciation then for research because I did do the research and it was end of life of normal aging for Holocaust survivors. They had no experience, as you said, with grandparents aging and dying of natural causes. Their children didn't have any or only very little experience. So this was the first time. As many parents will do, but survivors specifically, whatever you do, don't put me in a nursing home. Don't abandon me. And in this case, the children of survivors have to take that very seriously. Their parents were dumped and tortured and had everything done to them. So for them to come to this point without support of extended family is huge. Um, so different challenges for people trying to support them and learning what makes sense and how to support them. We can't say, no, don't worry, it's um, you know, it's a new millennium now, we'll take care of you. That's just not good enough. And end of life is a very um challenging path to be on. So um, what I learned was I was wrong in so many ways. The survivors knew intimately all about death and dying, more than I will ever know. They were protecting their children, and they didn't want their kids to have to explore this to infinitely. So they were trying to keep maintain everything they could for the sake of their children, nor could they often talk to their kids about it, because that would be too hard on their children. And often they were right. So again, it's as simple as the showers. For some people, it's a huge trigger. And for others, it's just a lovely, quick, quick way to clean up. And that's the art of it. Totally. Yes. And for some just saying goodbye after being relocated to a nursing facility, which just reminds them of, you know, being relocated to the camps or having to go somewhere else to, um, uh, during the war. Uh, just saying goodbye under those circumstances is is triggering. Yep. So the final goodbye, even more so. Totally. And it, I mean, it's hard for anybody. Um, adult children now are often olders, elders, older adult children, because people are living longer. And it's difficult to lose a parent um, for anybody. When you add these layers of complexity on top of it, it's um, uniquely difficult. So, Wow. Yes. Yes. Well, it, this is very fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Paula, for joining us today. Appreciate it. And folks should check out Silent Tears, music produced by Daniel Rosenberg. Pyadora Tango Ensemble. They're amazing. 
And yeah. Tangle has great relevance coming into this whole saga. So that too is unique. Right. That's a whole other story. But just Yiddish tango was popular at the time, right? It was a popular genre. And many, it sort of came to a halt, the whole genre during during Absolutely. World War II. It came to a halt along with everything else. So, so much is being revitalized and retold. One thing that really stands out is being asked medical history of your family. Not only can a lot of people not answer those questions because they don't remember not only their own parents but their and their grandparents, but their aunts and their uncles, their sisters and brothers, they don't have a reference point for these things. And it brings back memories for people. It's really complicated because the <laughs> children have the same issues. So their children will go see a doctor about some aching pain. They want a medical history. I have one friend, child of survivors, she says, well, everybody's dead. They were all murdered. And the doctor that she was seeing did not even have an inkling of what she was talking about, but probably thought she was nuts too. But that's a big gap when it's so many people have it. Right. In the manual, it talks about the relationship between these geriatric Holocaust survivors and their grandchildren. A lot of times these grandchildren of Holocaust survivors have much less complicated relationships than their own parents had with their parents. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then also just one thing about war and what we can do for future generations. So your final thoughts on that. Okay, so first and second generations, the survivors as parents had a really rough road. For so many, there was a driving force to have children. And that was because they lost everybody else. They needed family. Um, the second was how to raise these children without any support or family models or anything else. So, And then in a new country, all the problems of immigration and landing in a new and strange place. So there are there is obvious um, demonstration that there is a generational transference of trauma. And these children were raised on the fact that either their parents told them everything or they told them nothing, depending on how they responded and reacted. So, But raised with trauma living in the house, period. Um, and that's difficult. And great protection and great vulnerability on behalf of their parents, because their parents were deeply suffering. And so then the grandchildren, though, have cousins usually they have other relatives they have grandparents who the survivors who are thrilled to see them and not having to wonder how they will feed them or if they can speak the same language all of those things and the grandchildren are learning the stories some of them very very intently and response they want to know and they share it but a different response totally they're doing it much more under an umbrella of safety and much more spontaneous loving that's really hard to do when you're trying to wonder where supper's coming from. So that's uh, it's quite wonderful seeing the grandchildren who want to speak up but and are doing it with just total loving and honoring grandparents. And across the board, I think survivor or not survivor, there's something lovely that happens over generations that way. But there is still in the second generation still struggles with the kind of transference and traumatic transference that they inherited. 
And I think your second question to that was, what do we learn? Is that? Yeah, what do we learn? Absolutely. What can we do for families who are recently like, you know, refugees who are fleeing war-torn areas in Ukraine and everywhere else? Well, number one is we know so much more about trauma. We have learned so much over the decades. Um, Number one is um, give them sanctuary. Um, Accept them, number one. Um, That's the hugest challenge. Too many countries are closing the doors and locking them out. It could so easily be any of us at any time. And then understand what they're coming from. And not only that, what they left. And if they left um, an entire family who's endangered or who's been murdered or killed, just the challenges of that kind of relocating. I thought I had thought about things before until I sat in a room for several hours with people who really experienced it. And I still don't even think, I have a good imagination. I still don't think I can imagine what it would be like, but try my experience with indigenous communities, Serbian, Rwandan, other communities who have landed in, into my world as refugees suffering extreme trauma. The indigenous people were in my world before I was, but it's look at the commonalities. Look at the values of family, of caring for kids, of just trying to survive and focus on those rather than the differences. I have a hard time understanding in North America and when we are a, a whole continent of people who came from somewhere else, why we're struggling so much to recognize people who really need to come from somewhere else. Thank you again, Dr. Paula David. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Yeah.